I am happy to be here today to present a lecture, a short presentation it is, on international liability for transboundary harm arising from hazardous activities. This involves elaboration of principles on allocation of loss. The present lecture would, it is hoped, highlight the work of the International Law Commission which is given the mandate by the United Nations Charter to codify and progressively develop international law. And the subject of transboundary harm which I am now bringing to your attention is one such effort of the Commission. It may be recalled that as a result of this mandate, which it has, the, the Law Commission has had on the subject of international liability, and it's a long title, international liability for harm, arise, transboundary harm arising out of acts not prohibited by international law, a mandate given to it a subject for which a mandate has been given to the Commission in, 2000, in 1978 had to be actually broken into two parts as the matter developed within the Commission, both for reasons of convenience as well as for reasons of policy. This, of course, it become clear as I elaborate on the matter. One set of draft articles on the duty of prevention was thus adopted in 2001 and another set of draft articles, draft principles rather, not articles, on allocation of loss was adopted in 2006. We will now in this section of our lecture or in this part of our lecture, would deal with principles on allocation of loss for transboundary harm arising from hazardous activities. The draft articles on prevention will be, will be dealt with in a separate lecture. The delimitation of the topic in terms of liability for injurious consequences arising from acts not prohibited by international law, as you notice a big title, was the subject of much discussion within the Commission and outside. Professor Brownlee of Oxford and others noted that the designation acts not prohibited by international law was misplaced as the focus of the subject of international liability like that of the subject of responsibility is and should be on the wrongful consequences of acts or activities. They also pointed out there are, that there are very few acts that are in fact prohibited under international law, while harmful effects of any activity, whether or not it is prohibited, are always a matter of legal regulation. On the other hand, there was support for for the reference to acts not prohibited by international law and it was argued that the purpose of the classification was essentially to ensure that the activity itself is not regarded as prohibited on account of its harmful consequences. As was noted in our lecture on prevention, or will be noted in our lecture on prevention, the reference to acts not prohibited by international law was retained by the Commission essentially to deal with responsibility for risk of harm, which is separate from 
responsibility for internationally wrongful acts. Since that time, that was 1978 and thereabouts, if nothing else, this demarcation served as a mark of delimitation of the subject. This particular use of terminology, acts not permitted by international law, served as a mark of delimitation of the subject from that of the state responsibility topic. There is no doubt that responsibility for risk of transboundary harm can arise from lawful acts or activities as the treatment of tort liability or civil wrongs in domestic law shows. Thus conceived, the real focus in matters of liability is on the consequences of acts, not on whether they are prohibited or not. Topics of prevention and liability deal with primary rules, that is, with rules conferring rights and obligations upon states. State responsibility, on the other hand, deals with secondary rules, that is, rules which deal with consequences arising from breach of international obligations. This distinction between primary and secondary rules is, of course, one convenient way of looking at the law governing international liability as opposed to the law of state responsibility. It may be recalled that the International Law Commission spent a considerable amount of time delimiting the nature and scope of the topic of international liability during the initial years when Professor Quentin Quentin Baxter of New Zealand was appointed as the special rapporteur and he worked from 1980 until 1984. This is primarily because the focus was on state liability and strict liability, strict or absolute liability of the state. There was also no clarity on the type of activities to be covered within the scope of the topic. Further, prevention and liability were treated together as part of a continuum or a common spectrum. On the scope of the topic, a wide variety of activities and situations were initially conceived as coming within the scope of the subject or the topic by Professor Quentin Baxter. He defined situations as state of affairs within the territory or control of the sourced state which gives rise or may give rise to physical consequences with transboundary effects. Special Rapporteur provided examples of situations and these included an, an approaching oil slick, danger from floods or drifting ice or risks arising from an outbreak of fire. As per activities, several were mentioned. Among them are transboundary pollution of fresh water, of coastal waters, or of national airspace, or pollution of the shared environment, including oceans and outer space. As you can see, there's a wide variety of activities are conceived to be coming within the scope of the subject initially, and this raised some issues of their own, of its own. It was only around 1996, however, that the commission was able to settle on the scope of the topic. As a working arrangement, it decided not to list activities coming within its scope, because once you list any activity, either as a, uh, the, the times and the scientific knowledge that grows with it would require states to amend this list, either adding new items or deleting some items which are already in the list. And this becomes never a, a fixed matter for consideration as it has to be kept under review. And in any case, there will always be some activities which would not fall within the list and still be considered as important by others to have been included in that list. 
So the commission decided instead not on a list of activities but on a criteria to define which would then provide the basis to bring in kind of activities that are required to be dealt with under the topic. It was agreed, according to this criteria, that the focus first be should be on activities that carry a risk of causing transboundary harm. Second, for this purpose, transboundary harm would refer to risk of harm likely to be caused by activities situated in one state but resulting in harm in the areas beyond that state in the territory or places under the jurisdiction of another state. Third, that such harm must be related to the physical consequences of hazardous activities so that there is a direct causal connection between the activity and the harm. In other words, according to this criteria, it was decided to exclude from the scope of the topic harm to global commons, that is areas beyond national jurisdiction of any state, damage to the environment per se, not within the national jurisdiction, or air pollution and creeping pollution not attributable to any one source. Full stop. In addition, economic consequences arising from policies and decisions of one state or another also do not fall within the scope. Further, it was this orientation on the scope of the topic that guided the subsequent work of the Commission, both on the topic of prevention until 2001 and on liability since then and at least uh, since then and until its completion in 2006. It may be recalled that to expedite the work of the Commission, it was also decided on the basis of a recommendation of the Working Group of the Commission in 1997 to separate the topic of prevention from international liability from transboundary harm. During the time when Julio Barboza of Argentina handled the topic as the special rapporteur, that is from 1986, following the death of Prenton Baxter in 1984, the Commission focused on state liability until 1996 based on the concept of strict liability. There are some good reasons for this emphasis on state and strict liability. Ensuring expeditious compensation to victims is one. Another is reversing the burden of proof to be placed on the respondent or the operator. It was felt that such an approach would assist victims of transboundary harm seeking necessary remedies without having to resort to foreign jurisdiction. In any case, certain examples of states accepting liability for damage done to persons and property, like in the case of outer space and development of nuclear weapons, lend certain weight for this preference. On the other hand, it was feared that the that state liability approach might amount to absolute liability in the absence of any agreement or commonly accepted standards concerning the operation of the hazardous activity, including the level of harm considered to be significant. Any undue emphasis on strict or absolute liability at the international level appeared inappropriate while state practice, states in practice adopted a more pragmatic approach to compensation and without having to rely consistently upon any one concept of liability. Besides, 
there's an overall resistance among states particularly states operating under a market economy to accept liability for the acts of private parties attribution of responsibility to states of wrongful conduct of private citizens or operators in the absence of involvement of state officials or agents is not normally provided for in international law the trails melter arbitration between united states of america and canada offered one example of a state in this case canada accepting responsibility for the wrongful emissions of gases from a private smelter a trail which escaped in trail in canada which escaped into the neighboring territory of the usa this was however an exception it was a voluntary act on the part of canada it was felt therefore that any emphasis on state liability would not be proper many developing countries in fact would also be not in a position to pay prompt and equitable compensation to transboundary victims for damage caused by private operators of hazardous activities to require them to pay compensation would be even more ironical if the private operator war was a subsidiary of a multinational corporation with better financial standing than the concerned developing country host developing country itself moreover if it is the operator who would be the primary beneficiary of the financial gains of the operation it is logical for the operator to take the first charge on any loss arising from the operation operation it is also argued that the subject of international liability is best dealt with at the bilateral or regional level or on a sectoral basis and that it is not suitable for a comprehensive regulation at the global level for the reasons noted above some states and members of the commission even suggested that the topic of international liability be totally abandoned but this course of action was not acceptable to a majority of members of the commission as well as states who pressed for full discharge of the mandate given to the com- commission in respect of the topic of international liability the general assembly itself required such an action in 2001 to complete the mandate in full in respect of the topic in the light of this a working group of the commission reviewed the matter and recommended a new policy framework for the completion of the work on international liability the framework so recommended envisaged a a focus on focus on harm caused for a variety of reasons but not involving state responsibility b elaboration of principles on allocation of loss among different actors involved in the operation of hazardous activities c covering within the scope of the topic several aspects including loss to persons property elements of state patrimony and natural heritage as well as the environment within the national jurisdiction and d adapting for the draft principles the same focus and scope governing the draft articles on prevention the commission endorsed these recommendations and appointed the present lecturer as the special rapporteur in 1997 the significance of the framework suggested by the 2002 working group of the ILC is that it attempted to set in motion a new approach that would not have to rely exclusively on any one concept of liability much less on state liability it is also helpful in setting many of the unresolved issues concerning the nature of activities the criteria for delimiting transboundary damage and the threshold of damage to be brought within the scope of the topic at the policy level there is a general support there is general support for the proposition that any regime of liability and compensation should aim at ensuring that the innocent victim is not as far as possible and i underline as far as possible left to bear the loss resulting from transboundary harm 
It is, however, acknowledged that full and complete compensation may not always be possible. This is because of the problems associated with the definition of damage, difficulties concerning proof of loss, problems relating to the applicable law, and limitations imposed on the operator's liability, particularly if it is strict. There are also problems in arranging additional funding supplementing operator's limited liability. If such limited liability is approved or engaged or otherwise provided for. At the same time, there is agreement that any regime for allocation of law should also ensure through such in incentives as are necessary that the operator take all appropriate measures to prevent transboundary damage as part of this duty, states should also ensure that contingency plans and response measures to contain or mitigate damage are envisaged over and above those measures already contemplated in the phase prior to damage, uh, uh, for, for the phase, for the phase of prevention, let me put it that way, for the phase of prevention as provided for under the draft articles on prevention. Second, such a regime should facilitate expeditious dispensation of prompt and adequate compensation to victims of transboundary damage through inexpensive claim resolution procedures. Third, it should make the polluter pay to the extent possible and thus promote the economic function through the concept or economic function uh, through the concept of internalization of costs. Polluter space principle is a principle of policy, an economic policy, one that ensures and that one that aims at internalization of costs. That is, any operator should absorb the cost concerning alleviation of uh, cost concerning any response measures or payment of compensation as far as possible with internally with, with the operational with the cost of the operation of the project or activity itself. The Commission examined relevant provisions of the Conventions on Liability dealing with various fields including oil pollution, nuclear damage and environment. The ILC also reviewed issues that arise in the case of civil liability of the operator including conflict of loss. The following conclusions were drawn. State liability, let me say this again, the following conclusions were drawn in, 19, in, in, in 1998. These are state liability is not generally favored except in the case of outer space activities. B, in the case of significant damage, liability is channeled through a single entity and in the case of stationary operations to the operator of the installation. However, other, other, other possibilities also exist. C, the liability of the person in control of the activity is strict but limited in the case of hazardous or dangerous activities. Most liability regimes concerning dangerous activities provide for additional or supplementary source of funding created by contributions either from the operators of the same type of dangerous activities or from entities for whose benefit, direct benefit the dangerous or hazardous activity is carried out. Strict liability, e, strict liability has been recognized in several jurisdictions in, in all the legal systems around the world. Hence, arguably, it could be regarded as a general principle of international law or in any case could be considered as a measure of progressive development of international law. F, fault-based liability is not likely to better serve the interests of innocent victims and it has been retained as an option for liability. Uh, let me rephrase that a little bit. F, fault-based liability is not unlikely to better serve the interests of innocent victims and it is and it has been retained as an option for liability. 
the various models of allocation of loss or liability and compensation schemes make one point very clear. They demonstrate that a state has a duty to ensure arrangements to guarantee equitable allocation of loss. It does not follow that in every case that duty is best discharged by negotiating a liability convention, still less one based on any particular set of elements. It could, for example, be discharged if it is considered appropriate, as in the case of European community law, by allowing forum shopping that permits the plaintiff to sue in the jurisdiction most favorable to him. Alternatively, an ad hoc settlement could be negotiated as in the Bhopal litigation. While the schemes do show common elements, they also show that each is tailor-made for its own context. On the matter of civil liability of the operator, it is clear that the legal issues involved are complex and could only be resolved on the merits of each case, depending upon the jurisdiction in which the case is taken up and the applicable law. Any attempt at crafting a global regime would then have to make a variety of choices and a certain amount of harmonization of national laws at the global level. Such an exercise is beyond the scope of the work of the Commission and properly belongs to bodies concerned with harmonization and development of private international law. The Commission, therefore, was persuaded that it was desirable to fashion at the global level a general and residuary regime of liability. This would enable states to have sufficient flexibility to develop schemes of liability to suit their special circumstances and needs. On the question of damage to environment, the matter was considered at two levels. Damage to environment per se or damage to the global commons was pressed as an important feature by some. The majority of members and the 2002 working group of the commission considered the matter and felt that it was better dealt with as a separate, uh, as a separate issue. It is clear that the sources of pollution, the techniques of, the techniques of evaluating the damage, the standing to present claims, and identification of the respondent liable were not easy and did not fall squarely into the framework of the topic on international liability. As pointed out by one commentator, the impossibility of attributing emissions of a specific country to specific damages due to the complex and synergic effect of the diverse pollutants and the non-linearity of climate change is very problematic. As such, liability and compensation for damage caused to global environment in general or in the context of climate change would have to be organized on a different basis than the one applicable in the case of transboundary harm. Even in this case, even in these cases that are not otherwise found suitable for the topic under consideration, failure of due diligence obligations, duties of cooperation and consultations as set out in various international conventions would of course engage state responsibility. even in such areas as global commons and climate change. However, there is no difficulty to deal with damage to and associated costs of recovery or restoration of environment or natural resources per se located within the national jurisdiction of a state. It was against this background that the eight principles of allocation of loss were adopted by the Commission in 2006 some preliminary points may be noted with respect to these principles. They are that the declaration of principles are of a non-binding character. These draft principles assume that the state of origin is in full compliance of its obligations as provided under the draft articles on prevention. Nevertheless, it envisages situations where transboundary harm may occur as a result of factors beyond its control, knowledge not in its possession, or because of the gradual accumulation of adverse effects over a period of time. It would be a different matter if transboundary harm occurred essentially due to breach of obligations of prevention by the state of origin, in which case it would bear responsibility under international law. Engagement of such a responsibility would not necessarily give rise to the implication 
that the activity itself is prohibited. In addition, any such responsibility is independent of such civil liability as may be attachable to the operator. Indeed, this is well understood throughout the work of the draft principles, draft articles and prevention. Compared to the general principles concerning compensation under the law of state responsibility, the policies concerning compensation provided under the principles of allocation are more specific and practical. Being general and residuary, these principles often offer necessary guidelines for states to enter into bilateral, regional, and multilateral arrangements covering specific activities and to suit their particular circumstances. In addition, it is felt that the goal of widespread acceptance of the substantive provisions is more likely to be met if the outcome is cast as principles rather than as a draft convention. The draft principles do refer in certain circumstances to obligations and on those occasions it posits them by using the term shall. The use of the term shall as opposed to should or may or a purpose, sometimes the word used is purpose in the draft principles was the outcome of consensus, consensus achieved to reconcile the position of those who intended the principles to have a mandatory character as opposed to those who wished to see them as purely recommendatory. An additional point to note is that the focus of the Commission was on the formulation of the substance of the draft principles as a coherent set of standards of conduct and practice, best practices. It did not attempt to identify the current status of the various aspects of the draft principles in customary international law and the way in which the draft principles are formulated is not intended to affect that question. The preamble to the draft principles addresses some of these points. Further, out of the eight principles, the first two do not strictly qualify as principles as they deal with the scope and definition of terms used. Principle 1 refers to transboundary damage caused by hazardous activities not prohibited by international law. It thus aligns the scope of the topic entirely with the scope of the prevention articles. Accordingly, hazardous activities covered are those that have a risk of causing significant harm. The means, this means activities covered are differentiated from other activities because of the specific character which combines effect of the probability, probability of occurrence of an accident and the magnitude of its injurious impact. Given the scope of the draft principles, they cover instances involving not only significant damage, a threshold that is felt necessary to ward off frivolous and vexatious claims. It's further understood that the threshold will develop over time in a pragmatic manner and in the context of specific circumstances. The Commission avoided any value determination as it related to factual and objective criteria. Following the same approach adopted in the case of the draft articles on prevention, the Commission opted to dispense with the specification of a list of activities. Such a specification of a list of activities is not without problems and functionally is not considered essential. Any such list of activities is likely to be under-inclusive and might quickly need review in the light of ever-evolving technological developments. Further, except for certain ultra-hazardous activities, which are mostly the subject of special regulation, that is, in the nuclear field or in the context of activities in outer space, the risk that flows from an activity is primarily a function of the particular application, the specific context, the manner of operation. It is felt that it is difficult to capture these elements in a generic list. Moreover, it is always open to states to specify activities coming within the scope of the present draft principles through multilateral, regional or bilateral arrangements or to do so in their national legislation. These are the very same activities which require in any case prior authorization under the prevention articles. Examples of some of these activities can be found in various international conventions. For example, the 1992 Convention on the Protection of Marine Environment of the Baltic Sea Area, the 1992 Convention on the Transboundary Effects of Industrial Accidents, the 200, 2003 Protocol on Civil Liability and Compensation for Damage Caused by Transboundary Effects of Industrial Accidents on Transboundary Waters, the 2003 Key Protocol. Another example is Annex 2 to the Convention on Civil Liability for Damage Resulting from Activities Dangerous to the Environment, the Lugano Convention, where activities such as the 
placement of installations or sites for their partial complete disposal of solid, liquid or gaseous waste by incineration on land or at sea and installation or sites for thermal degradation of solid, gaseous or liquid waste under reduced oxygen supply have been identified as dangerous activities. The Lugano Convention also has a list of dangerous substances. The European Parliament and the Council of the Directive of the European Parliament and the Council of 21st April 2004 on environmental liability with regard to the prevention and remedy of environmental damage also provides guidance. The definition of damage in Article 2A expands the scope of damage to cover not only damage to persons and property but also to environment. Loss of property includes loss of property forming part of cultural heritage. Loss of environment covers damage on account of on account of impairment of environment, which is its, which is itself defined in broad terms in Article 2B. Costs of reasonable measures of reinstatement of the property or environment, including natural resources, and the cost of reasonable responsible measures are also covered. Article 2A, paragraphs 1 and 2, relate to Subparagraphs 1 and 2 relate to personal injury and property damage, including some aspects of consequential economic loss. This, is, this refers to loss of life or personal injury or loss of or damage to property, as well as loss of earnings due to personal injury. Damage to property includes damage to state property. State property includes national cultural heritage. It embraces a wide range of aspects, including monuments, buildings, sites, while natural heritage denotes natural features and sites and geological and physiological formations. 72 Convention concerning the protection of world cultural and natural heritage a comprehensive has a comprehensive definition of cultural heritage. Not all civil liability conventions include cultural heritage in the definition of damage to property. The Lugano Convention on the Protection of Protection and Use of Transboundary Watercourses and International Lakes includes it in the definition of environment. Subparagraphs 3 and two, five, 3 to 5 of Article 2A or other the principle 2a are concerned with questions concerning damage to environment per se this damage the, this is damage caused by the hazardous activities to the environment itself with or without simultaneously causing damage to persons or property and hence is independent of any damage to such persons and property the broader reference to claims concerning the environment incorporated in subparagraphs 3 to 5 does not only builds upon the trends that have already become prominent as part of recently concluded international liability regimes, but opens up possibilities for further development as the law for the protection of the, uh, developments of the law for the protection of the environment per se. Thus, as the commentary confirms to the commentary to article to draft articles of uh, draft principles of 2006 confirms Loss of income deriving from any use of the environment and loss of ecological or aesthetic values, otherwise referred to as non-use values, are also covered. It is encouraging to note that the UN Commission in 2005 allowed nearly $5.2 billion of compensation for pure environmental damage not involving any commercial value as well as for claims where there is only a temporary loss of resource used during the period prior to full restoration. In case restoration of damage or destroyed components of the environment is not possible through reasonable costs, the introduction of the equivalent of these components into the environment is expected. Reasonable costs are costs not disproportional to the value of recovery achieved. The invocation of the principle of equivalence is a further progressive step in the direction of prevention of protection of environment. This element is not reflected in the Basel Protocol but found its place in the U.S. Oil Pollution Act of 1990-1997 protocol to amend the Vienna Convention on Civil Liability for Nuclear Damage, the 1993 Lugano Convention, the 2003 Q Protocol on Civil Liability and Compensation for Damage Caused by the Transboundary Effects of Industrial Accidents on Transboundary Waters and the EU Common, po and the EU common Position on Proposed Directive on Liability of 18 September 2003. Principle 3 deals with the purposes of draft principles 
that is to ensure prompt and adequate compensation and preservation and protection of environment in case of transboundary damage. We have dealt with the aspect of environment in some detail so far. Some comments on the other purpose will be useful. The policy of prompt and adequate compensation is sought to be achieved at one level through the implementation of the polluter-based principle. This principle, as noted in the context of the lecture on prevention, which serves, uh, serves an economic function of internalization of costs and to ensure that governments not distort the cost of international trade investment by subsidizing the cost of pollution and cleanup. Thus, the Lugano Convention notes in the preamble the desirability of providing for strict liability in this field, taking into account the polluter-based principle. The 2003 Q Protocol also does the same in its preamble by referring to the polluter-based principle as a general principle of international environmental law. It is also accepted as such by the parties of the 1992 Protection and Use of Water Courses Convention and lakes and the 1992 Industrial Accidents Convention. National jurisdictions have also placed reliance on it as playing a remedial and compensatory function. For example, the Indian Supreme Court in the Vellore Citizens, Vellore Citizens Welfare Forum versus Union of India uh, noted that the precautionary, uh, this is a case of 1996 before the Supreme Court, noted that the precautionary principle, the polluter-based principle, and the new burden of proof supported by Articles of 21, 47, 48A, and 51A, Paragraph G of the Constitution of India, have become part of environmental law of the country. Nevertheless, given the fact that this is not seen as a rigid rule of application universally, some commentators doubt whether the polluter-based principle has achieved the status of generally applicable rule of customary international law, except perhaps in relation to states in the EC, UNECE, and the OECD. As there are limitations on payment of full compensation, what is stressed is adequate compensation. Principle 4, which deals with the allocation of loss, notes in paragraph 2 that compensation should not require proof of fault as a basis. The operator of a hazardous activity is usually subject to strict liability. Given its endorsement in almost all jurisdictions, it merits characterization as a general principle law. As strict liability dispenses with the need to prove fault, it is regarded as best place to give effect to the polluter-based principle. Given the fact that the requirement of causation still controls claims concerning transboundary damage, however, a test of foreseeability or proximity may deny any compensation. It may be mentioned that the test of proximity seems to have been gradually eased in modern tort law. Developments have moved from strict conditio sine qua non theory over the foreseeability or adequacy test to a less stringent causation test requiring only the reasonable imputation of damage. Further, the forcibility test could become less and less important with progress being made on at various in various related fields of science and statistics dealing with probability. Given these reasons, such tests have not been included in a more in a more general analytical model on loss of allocation. Claims of liability based on strict liability usually allow for limited compensation. In addition, strict liability admits certain standard exceptions. For example, A, an act of armed conflict, hostilities, civil war, or insurrection. Or B, the result of a natural phenomena of exceptional, inevitable, unforeseeable, and irresistible character or C, wholly the result of compliance with the compulsory measure of a public authority in the state of injury, or D, wholly the result of the wrongful and intentional conduct of a third party. Compensation is also dependent on the definition of damage allowed under any particular legal instrument or in any particular jurisdiction. There are some questions about principles on the basis of which compensation could be awarded. Should compensation be awarded only in respect to the actual loss suffered by the victim to the extent it can be quantified? Or should compensation go beyond that and reflect the paying capacity of the operator? For example, the Supreme Court of India in the MC Mehta versus Union of India, the oleum gas leak case of 1987, stressed the point that the larger and more prosperous 
the enterprise greater must be the amount of compensation payable to the harm caused on account of an accident in the carrying on of the hazardous or inherently dangerous activity by the enterprise. However, two guiding principles are widely endorsed. The first is damage is awarded should not have punitive function. The second is that the victim can only be com compensated for the loss suffered but cannot expect to financially gain from the harm caused. Some general principles concerning payment of compensation have evolved over a period of time and were endorsed by the Internet Court of Justice and other tribunal, international tribunals. These may be briefly noted. Financially accessible damage, that is damage quantifiable in monetary terms, is compensable. B. Damage suffered by the state to its property or personnel or, in the, or, personnel or in respect of expenditures reasonably incurred to remedy or mitigate damage as well as damage suffered by natural or legal persons, both nationals and those who are resident um, suffered injury on its territory are compensable. The particular circumstances of the case, the content of the obligation breached, the assessment of reasonableness of measures undertaken by parties in respect to the damage caused, and finally, consideration of equity and mutual accommodation. These factors will determine the terms or heads against which precise sums of compensation may be payable. Principle 4, which deals with prompt and adequate compensation in some detail, puts primary emphasis on strict liability of the operator. Be the state of origin, but, but the state of origin may impose such exceptions and limitations as are considered appropriate, which, however, shall be consistent with draft principle 3. The draft principle envisages the definition of operator in functional terms and is based on the factual determination as to who has the use, control, and direction of the object of the relevant point in time at the relevant point in time. State of origin under Article 4.1, however, should take all necessary measures to ensure that prompt and adequate compensation is available for victims of transboundary damage. The state could thus, as part of these measures, require the operator or where appropriate another person or entity to establish and maintain financial security such as insurance, bonds, or other financial guarantees to cover claims of compensation. The state could also require that the establishment of industry-wide funds at the national level and the event that these measures are insufficient to provide adequate compensation, the state of origin should also ensure that additional financial resources are made available. This, this prescription thus addresses what is mostly provided for as best practices as part of good governance. However, there are several variations and limitations in practice in the specification of necessary measures under different national jurisdictions. Prompt and adequate compensation is a policy endorsed by the trails matter case uh, arbitration and has since been widely referred to to enable some commentators to consider it as a principle of customary law. Promptness refers to expeditious access and disposal of the claim through judicial and other relevant forms established under law. It may be recalled that claims in the Amoco Cadiz case took 13 years of, for disposal and the claims of victims of Bhopal gas tragedy are still not fully and satisfactorily disposed of. Adequacy refers to any amount as negotiated among states concerned, including lump sum increments, or those sanctioned by judicial tribunals in accordance to due process of law. As long as compensation given is not arbitrary and grossly disproportionate to the damage actually suffered, even if it is less than full, it can be regarded as adequate. In other words, adequacy is not in intended to denote sufficiency. Insurance schemes are slowly but steadily becoming available to cover losses generated by hazardous activities. To cover losses in the case of transboundary damage, foreign loss event in addition to domestic loss event would have to be covered. Such schemes generally cover oil spillage and damage due to other hazardous activities. The importance of such mechanisms cannot be overemphasized. It has been noted that financial assurance is beneficial for all stakeholders, for public authorities and public in general. It is one of the most effective, if not the only way, of ensuring that restoration actually takes place in line with polluter-based principle for industry operators. It provides a way of spreading risks and managing uncertainties for the insurance industry. It is a sizable market. And for the in insurance industry, it is a sizable market. Such insurance coverage should also be available for cleanup costs. In addition to the establishment of industry-wide funds at the national level, additional sources of finances referred to in Article 4.5 can, can come from different sources. One account could be out of public funds as part of national budget. 
In other words, the state could take a share in the allocation of loss created by the damage as it happened in the case of nuclear energy operations. Another account could be a common pool of funds created by contributions created from created by contributions either from operators of the same category of the dangerous activities or from entities from whose benefit the dangerous hazardous dangerous or hazardous activity is carried out. This is the case with management of risk associated with the transport of oil by sea. But in the case of hazardous activities which are very special, supplementary funds may have to be developed through some form of taxation on consumers or the products and services the industry generation supports. This may be particularly necessary if the proof of operators, uh, operators and, and if the pool of operators and directly interested consumers is very thin and not connected by any common economic or strategic interest. Article 5 deals with the notification to all concerned, including authorities of state affected or likely to be affected by the transboundary damage after damage occurred. The type of information required to be communicated, the duty of cooperation with affected parties, including competent international organizations, establishing joint response or monitoring mechanisms on the basis of best available scientific data and technology are referred to in this context. Principle 5 also provides that states likely to be affected by such an incident are to take all feasible measures to mitigate and if possible to eliminate the effects of such damage. In taking the response measures after the damage states, after the, after the damage, states are required to be guided by the precautionary approach. As in the case of precautionary approach, at the stage of prevention, lack of scientific certainty should not detain states and entities responsible for the activity causing transboundary damage from taking the type of measures that on best judgment are needed to mitigate and eliminate the damage involved. Article 6 and 7 deal with remedies. With respect to providing specific remedies, several procedures have been envisaged. For example, state could, in the case of transboundary damage, negotiate and agree on the quantum of compensation payable. The United States paid $2 million to Japan in the case of damage to cost to fishermen nationals of Japan due to nuclear tests conducted by the United States of America in 54 near Marshall Islands. The, the, near Marshall Islands, the USSR made a similar payment of Canadian dollars, $3 million Canadian dollars by way of compensation to Canada following the crash of Cosmos 954 in January 1978. In addition, other procedures may include mixed claims commissions and negotiation of lump sum payments. Mention may also be made of the draft Articles 21 and 22 adopted by the Working Group of the Commission in 1996. Article 21 of that particular um, uh, um, proposal recommended that the state of origin and the affected state should negotiate at the request of either party on the nature and extent of compensation and other relief. Article 22 referred to several factors that states may wish to consider for arriving at the most equitable quantum of compensation. Though several European states paid compensation to their nationals for damage suffered due to Chernobyl, uh, Chernobyl nuclear accident, they did not attempt to make formal claims for compensation, even uh, uh, make formal claims or commission uh, um, uh, to the United States or to, to the USSR uh, 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 at that time, even while they reserved their right to do so. The various measures contemplated at the international level do not preclude possibilities whereby a state of origin may make a contribution to the state affected to disperse compensation through appropriate national claims procedures established by the affected state. Such negotiations need not, unless otherwise desired by Otherwise, unless otherwise desired, bar negotiations between the state of origin and the private injured parties and such parties uh, and, and the person responsible for the activity causing significant damage. Lump sum compensation could be agreed uh, either as a result of a trial or out of court settlement. In connection with the Bhopal gas leak disaster, the government of India attempted to consolidate the claims of the victims. It sought to seek compensation by approaching the U.S. Coast first, but on grounds of forum non-convenience, the matter was litigated before the Supreme Court of India. The Bhopal Gas Leak Disaster Processing of Claims Act of 1985 provides the basis for the consolidation of claims. The Supreme Court of India in the Union Carbide Corporation versus Union of India and others in 1990 gave an order settling the quantum of compensation to be paid in lump sum. It provided for Union Carbide to pay a lump sum of $470 million to the Union of India in full settlement of all claims, rights and liabilities 
related to and arising out of the Bhopal gas disaster. The original claim of the Indian government was, on behalf of the victims, was over $1 billion. Victims could immediately be given reasonable compensation on a provisional basis pending a decision on the admissibility of claims and the actual extent of payable compensation. National Claims Commission or Giant Claims Commission established for this purpose could examine the claims and settle the final payments of compensation. The United Nations Com uh, Compensation Commission and the U.S.-Iran Claims Commission may offer as useful, may offer themselves as useful models for some of these procedures. Then it says it under Article 2, uh, Paragraph 2 of Articles, uh, Principle 6. The Commission was aware of the heavy costs and expenses involved in pursuing claims on an international plane. It was also aware, is also aware of how long it could take to resolve some international claims. Principle 6.2 refers to the desire not to overburden the victim with a lengthy procedure akin to a judicial trial or procedures which may act as a disincentive. These procedures are understood to be without prejudice to the right of the individual to pursue other remedies under domestic law. Further, Principle 6.3 Stress, stresses the importance of effective domestic remedies. This may require removing hurdles in order to ensure participation in administrative hearing and proceedings. It also deals with two aspects of the equal rights of access. It emphasizes the importance of non-discriminatory standards for determination of claims concerning hazardous activities. Secondly, it deals with equal access to information. The reference to appropriate access is intended to indicate that in certain circumstances, Access to information or a disclosure of information may be denied. It is, however, important that even in such circumstances, information is readily available concerning the applicable exceptions, the grounds for refusal, procedures for review, and the charge, charges applicable, if any. Where feasible, such information should be accessible free of charge or with minimal expenses. The access to national procedures and remedies made available in the case of transboundary damage should be equal to those that a state provides under national law to its own nationals. It may be recalled that Article 16 of the Draft Articles on Prevention provides for similar obligation for states in respect of the phase of prevention during which they are required to manage the risk with all due diligence. A similar provision covering the phase where injury actually occurred despite all best efforts to prevent damage can be found in Article 32 of the 1997 Convention on the Law of the Non-Navigational Uses of International Water Courses. It is understood that in most cases, the substantive or applicable law to resolve compensation claims may involve either civil liability or criminal liability or both and would depend on a number of variables. Principles of civil law, common law, or private international law, governing choice of forum, as well as applicable law may come into focus depending upon the context and the jurisdiction involved. Accordingly, the proposed scheme is not only general and residuary, but is also flexible without any prejudice to the claims that might arise in the applicable law, uh, arise and the applicable law and procedures. Principle 7 calls for the consultation, a conclusion of global, regional, or bilateral agreements on particular categories of hazardous activities that would include arrangements for industry or state funds to provide for supplementary funds in the event that the operator does not have sufficient financial resources to provide adequate compensation. Principle 8 deals with the implementation through necessary legislative, regulatory, or administrative measures. In the application of this principle, states are required to observe the principle of non-discrimination irrespective of nationality, domicile, or residence. The duty to cooperate in implementing of these implementation of these principles is also stressed. Finally, on the form of instrument, different views have been advanced. On the one hand, it has been suggested that they should be cast as draft articles and thereby complement and supplement the draft articles on prevention. As the draft principles are general and residuary in character, they are more appropriately cast as principles. Casting them as such would give necessary flexibility to states to design particular regimes addressing specific hazardous activities taking into consideration various ap variations applicable in different legal systems. In addition, such flexibility may also help developing countries at different stages of economic development to make appropriate choices in this regard. According to one commentator, the main contribution of the principles will be to stre stress basic requirements 
identify issues and solutions and provide political legal encouragement for the creation of effective compensation schemes. As can be seen, as can be seen from our lecture, the Commission's main effort is to identify the best standards and practices that would enable states to ensure prompt and adequate compensation to victims of transboundary harm. In this process, the Commission has avoided getting involved with issues of private international law or conflict of laws that are best dealt with by forums specifically designed to deal with them. The effort of the Commission is also aimed at encouraging states to enter into specific agreements and bilateral multilateral agreements dealing with allocation of laws on the basis of principles identified as not only desirable but seen as the best practices employed around the world in respect of the operation of hazardous activities. Thus, the Commission attempted to promote progressive development of the law without having to impose one model, any one model, on the states. I thank you for your attention.